Our lesson today is from John chapter 3. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter the second time into the mother's room and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is that everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, You are a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come to the world. And people love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light, and do not come to the light, so that the deeds may not be exposed. For those who do what is true come to the light, so that it may clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. The word of the Lord. Just to be clear to all of uh, the Vikings fans, I'm very sorry. (laughs) We'll see you next year. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, stir up your holy power and come. Send your spirit into our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our ears, that we might hear a word for us today anew, and that we too might then live out that which we believe. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In 2012, a guy named uh, David Kenneman wrote a book uh, for a group of researchers called the Barna Group, and the title of the book was called Unchristian, 
I've referenced this book before, but just to refresh your memory, the very beginning of this book uh, is based on a number of research activities that this Barna group and David Kinneman uh, interacted with out in the world, primarily with people in the 18 to 35-year-old category. And at the very beginning of the book, in the very first chapter, he lays out some of the perceptions that people in that 18 to 35-year-old category have of Christians. These are their top perceptions, not just their top negative perceptions. These are their top perceptions, period. Three of them are hypocritical, judgmental, and anti-homosexual. These aren't just their, you know, perceptions negatively. These are their top perceptions of frankly, us, you and I, hypocritical, judgmental, and anti-homosexual. The reason I bring this up is on Thursday morning, Carrie Miller hosted a panel discussion out in Baltimore earlier a couple of weeks ago where she gathered together some religious leaders and a number of people in that age category, 18 to 35, and some others, uh, and it was an incredibly sobering conversation the very first question that they dealt with in that conversation was asking about feeling judged. And the young millennials in the audience came out of their shoes to describe how when they are interacting with other Christians or even find their way into churches, they feel judged. They feel that Christians are hypocritical. The title of the conversation is, Will Americans Continue to Lose Faith in Organized Religion? Happy day brightener at 9 o'clock in the morning to listen to in my car on my way to church where I work. The fastest growing uh, people in America right now who describe their religious orientation describe it this way. The question that they answer and check on the box is none, meaning I have no religious affiliation. Uh, Unfortunately, our researchers have now started to call them, as a group, the nuns, which is confusing because we don't have a lot of people running to the, uh, to the monasteries. And they're the nuns, N-O-N-E. But what really caught my attention about this conversation on Thursday morning was another group of researchers who have recently identified the age at which our children become disaffiliated from church. It's 13 years old. At 13 years old is when our children start to articulate that they are beginning to pull away from faith in general and their churches in particular. That's a sobering thought. I think for me and for all of us, it caught me as just hitting me square in the eyes that I need to think harder and I need to think of more how to help and how to respond. So in part, this is my response. Taking a deep breath, coming maybe in the middle of the night, I confess, we as people of God, at least I know for myself, I am both hypocritical and judgmental. Now don't get me wrong, there are times in my life where I have responded to the angels of my better nature. I have been generous and helpful. So have you. 
But when I get right down to it, oftentimes I can't even live up to the bare minimum expectations that I have for myself, let alone any expectations that God might have for me. I admit that on a pretty much daily basis, before I even roll out of bed in the morning, I've probably not lived up to even my own expectations. Did I brush my teeth before I went to bed? I can't remember. That's, you know, like on the basic list of things to do before you hit the pillow at night, and I'm not sure I did it. Let me give you a little example. So this past weekend, I got the chance to go out to Colorado and ski. And thanks to the Minnesota weather, we were delayed in steamboat for a night. And actually, we got shipped over to Denver. We're on the plane with a whole bunch of families, actually, two in particular, who it turns out live in Victorian Mound, not far away from me. Uh, we get put back on the airplane and flown over to Denver, and Delta, thanks be to God, puts us up in a hotel. Well, puts everyone on that plane up in the same hotel. And there are about 13 or 14 or 15 of us that all have to get into a shuttle that's about the size of a guitar, and we have to put all of our luggage in that van as well, which means these two families have their skis, their kids' skis, their kids' snowboards, their kids' snowboard boots, their boots, somebody else's boots, my boots, our skis, their luggage, and everything else has to get in this tiny little van. Well... I decide I like to be helpful. I'm helping getting everything put into the van. I put on the skis and the boot bag and the skis and the boot bag and the skis and the boot bag and another ski and more boot bags and more stuff. And we get it all in there and we all get on and the family's sitting down there. I have snacks in my bag because why? I always have snacks in my bag. I'm passing them out to the two-year-olds and I'm feeling pretty good about myself in my life. Some guy last on the bus gets on and he's talking on his cell phone and the door closes and now we're back in the dark again driving down the road. And as we're driving down the road, the guy in the cell phone is also standing in the front of the van just like I am. And as we sort of turn a corner, one of the pairs of skis that we've leaned up against the wall starts to come out a little bit and I have to reach past this ding-dong on his cell phone, push the skis back up against the wall so they don't hit the driver. It happens again. The bus turns, the skis come out, I push them back, the guy's still on his phone, and my thoughts go something like this. Hey, Jack Wagon, why don't you pay attention? There's a whole group of kids back here. The skis are about to hit the bus driver on the head. I don't know who you're on the phone with, but hang it up. <laughs> now, the guy could have been on the phone with a sick grandma. And I just caught myself... What, are you, what, what is your problem? I would love to think that on most days I live up to the angels of my better nature, but in that just brief, silly moment and example, I was down a pretty dark road with this jerk before we even blinked. And I realized I often am hypocritical and judgmental. And if anybody knew what was going on in my head, they might even describe me as not being very Christian. You might call me un-Christian. So I confess, as followers of Jesus, we often are hypocritical and judgmental. I know I am. But I also think it's a pervasive human problem, in part because the things that go on in our head are often descriptive of something that sort of goes like this. We we build our self-esteem and our self-worth far too often in comparison to somebody else. Aren't I good compared to the jerk on the phone who's letting the skis hit the driver in the back of the head? We're social creatures. We watch each other, listen to each other, pay attention to each other. We notice what 
house we live in, what car we drive, what school we went to, what news we listen to, how much money we have, how much money somebody else doesn't have, when somebody goes to church and when they don't, and why they do and what they said and when they said it and who they said it to, what job they have, or any of our millions of perceptions we have of someone else, their skin color, or even the language that they use. And we base our self-esteem in relationship to someone else instead of on the very, very simple and difficult to believe truth that God just loves you and God just loves them. Can you imagine how our positions toward each other might soften if somehow that truth actually grabbed us deep down inside and we really believed it? As people who come to church, we have have a mechanism for this really important human problem. We call it confession and forgiveness. We do it regularly, once a week in fact. Uh, It's designed to attack this very, very simple and fundamental issue that human beings have. We say, I am in bondage to sin and I cannot free myself. Sure, sometimes I live up to the angels of my better nature, but oftentimes I am a judgment machine, left and right, right and wrong, up and down, black and white, in and out, good and bad, saint and on-the-phone jerk sinner. And then thanks be to God, some fellow knucklehead, sinner and saint, stands up in front of all of us and says, as a called and ordained minister of the Church of Christ and by his authority, I therefore declare to you the entire forgiveness of all of that stuff. You are known and you are loved. And that's how you are defined. This is a backwards sermon in that I find a lot of this in the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes at night. I don't know why he comes at night, in fact. There are lots of reasons. All sorts of commentators give a million reasons. Maybe he's sneaky. Maybe he wants to hide. Maybe he's curious and he doesn't want to be embarrassed. Or maybe some commentators say this is a professional courtesy. After the teachers are all done teaching during the day, then all the teachers get together and have coffee and beer at night and the cover of darkness so that nobody overhears them having conversation. We, we don't know. But what I noticed about Nicodemus is that he doesn't come with a question. He comes with an answer. He comes with an assertion. And I don't know how that assertion is positioned in his head, But the moment that he utters the assertion to Jesus, Jesus pushes him down and knocks him off his feet and knocks him off his bearings. Jesus says, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. What? It's like a non sequitur that all of a sudden he lost his footing and he can't stand up quite straight. What are you talking about being born again? Like getting into my mother's womb and being born again? That doesn't make any sense. And then Jesus says, how can you be a teacher and not even know these things? The the problem with hypocrites and judgmental is that we often come believing we know more than we actually know. Or maybe thinking we know more than we actually should know. And the reason why it's a problem is because it hurts. It hurts the person saying it and it hurts the people hearing it. 
Let me give you a little bit of an example of what I'm thinking about here. So I went out, uh, I did get to go out to Colorado and went skiing. And if any of you have skied in the Midwest, um, and I even heard somebody who was from the East Coast, East Coast skiers are like this too. Uh, we're used to skiing on really nice groomed icicles where, <laughs> where all of the snow has been packed into the hill and it's one nice uniform sort of blanket of corduroy, they call it. And the nice part about that kind of skiing is you can be really pretty. And I like to ski pretty. This might surprise you, right? But in blanket corduroy like this, you can just make nice, easy turns, relatively unencumbered. The, the ground beneath your feet is highly predictable. And you can just sort of turn and turn and, oh, isn't that nice and predictable and clear and easy. And then when you get to Colorado and it's nose, 10 inches, all of a sudden everything is out the window because it looks very different. As you're going down the mountain, all of a sudden there's a mound of snow. Oh, can't turn here. And then there's another one. Can't turn here. All of a sudden everything becomes incredibly unpredictable and you have to be more flexible, more uncertain, and less in control. And strangely, even for a control freak like me, it's a lot more fun. I think our faith needs to be a little bit like that these days. Less declaration and more open, honest confession. Without stealing all of the thunder from next week's story, somebody the opposite of Nicodemus encounters Jesus and she gets it in a way that Nicodemus, who should know, doesn't. And she declares, wait, this couldn't be the Messiah, could it? This Jesus, he, he couldn't be worth following. Could he be? This, this Jesus, couldn't, is it possible that this Jesus is actually the one who is full of God's love and light and the embodiment of love itself? The reason I say this is for parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles like me, friends and neighbors of all of those amazing, brilliant, smart articulate 13-year-olds who are losing their faith. To all of them, I say this. I really don't know all the answers. In fact, I probably have as many or more questions than you do. And yes, sometimes my life looks very un-Christian and certainly not better than anyone else. But the reason I'm a Christian is that I keep trying to orient myself and my life towards Jesus, towards love, toward compassion, towards generosity, towards forgiveness. And the truth is, I get it wrong all the time, in big ways and small ways. But the crazy thing about the Spirit of God is that it seems to blow where it wills. And sometimes it catches me, and sometimes I miss it. But what I've learned is that the Spirit keeps coming back round again. And when it finally grabs me, I am eternally grateful. Because when it does, it's when I'm most alive. Amen.